Today's sponsor is Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash recode and using the promo code recode. Terms and conditions apply. Today's show is also brought to you by FreshBooks, which makes cloud accounting software that is ridiculously easy to use. FreshBooks has completely transformed how 5 million small businesses deal with their day-to-day paperwork. They do everything from invoices to expenses to time tracking. Get a free 30-day trial and start saving time and money at freshbooks.com ask. Hi, I'm Lauren Good, Senior Technology Editor at The Verge, and you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask. It's a podcast about consumer tech. We're all about making technology easier to understand and use, even when we don't understand it ourselves. So if you have questions about tech that you've been too embarrassed to ask, please send them in to us. There are a couple ways to submit your questions. You can tweet them to at Recode or to at me, at Lauren Good with an E at the end, with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. That's two R's and two S's, in case you cannot spell, as my co-host Kara Swisher likes to say. We also have an email address now. We've caught up with the times. It's too embarrassed at Recode.net. Again, two R's and two S's. And... If you'd like to listen to our back catalog, we have a really great back catalog. You can find all of our past episodes on iTunes. That's at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. While you're there, leave us a review. So as loyal listeners might be able to tell from my introduction, Kara Swisher is not here today. She is, where is she? She's fancy. She's in LA. She actually just interviewed James Corden of uh, Carpool Karaoke. And that is going to be airing this Monday and Recode Decode. So you're definitely going to want to check that out. So yeah, James Corden was slightly more important than me. You know what? I can handle it. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. He's a funny guy. But in her place, I'm thrilled to have Recode Senior Mobile Editor Ina Freed here in studio co-hosting with me. Ina, thanks for coming back on the show. Always happy to be here. <laughs> Ina, uh, so I tweeted yesterday that Dieter Bone was also going to be in the show. And in the first tweet, I didn't have enough space to include Ina as well. So I did a second tweet saying, Ina, you're going to be on the show. And she, she said she was chopped liver. You're the, so I'm like, Dieter just stepped out to grab a drink. So, well. <laughs> character. If you could have 150 characters, yeah. you'd have me. Yeah, I blame Twitter for that. Oh, and here's the other guest, since you're the first one. Dieter Bone is back joining us. Greetings, yeah, mobile accomplishers. So, nice. so I asked Dieter to get a Diet Coke. Evidently, we haven't had our daily restocking. Yeah, he brought have, me this. You can have lime which or I, berry. No, no, no. I'm going to go with no. Where's right. the pamplemousse? <laughs> so did you guys catch last week's episode by any chance where we talked about online mattresses? No. I've been trying. It's at the top of my, my pocket cast queue. Oh, you. What? I listened to your entire Verge cast <sighs> last week, Dieter. I thought it was excellent. Thank you. Well, anyway, in case you missed it, I sprung a lot of jokes on Kara. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, April, our new uh, robot reporter at The Verge, is really into puns. So we'll have when, to uh, really? when you we made the jokes, did they, did they land with a bounce? Did they yeah. thud? Well, yeah. And, you know, I lost sleep over a couple of them. Uh, because they <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, God. I'm just going to stop. Um, but this week, we're talking about a topic that more obviously has to do with technology. And that is... Google's new hardware. Oh, I thought it was going to be another episode about marijuana delivery or sex messaging, but you you really meant a serious tech topic. Well, did, did you listen to those episodes? I did actually listen what did to you those think episodes. Them? I thought it was very interesting. Um, you know. <laughs> That's what someone says when they're not very interesting. 
It's like when you're interviewing somebody and they're going off on some tangent. I just yeah. you're like, like mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. How yeah. does sex uh-huh. like it's so generational? Because I just think you don't like that's the answer to how to safely sext is don't. Well, it's funny we addressed that in the in the interview. This was with Caitlin Dewey of the Washington Post, and she said that she actually thinks that's the wrong answer. As a young feminist, she feels that the answer shouldn't be, shouldn't victim blame, and it shouldn't be like, well, you then have to control your behavior. I mean, but it should it, be on the part of the person you're sexting with right. to also be a responsible person. It also seems like it's it's uh, there's a parallel to abstinence only education, like doesn't work so just saying no don't do it yeah but it's not like you can put a condom on your photo and it's all good like i mean i really do think it's not just i respectfully disagree i don't think it is just a feminist issue i think uh both men and women you know should think about the fact that anything you send to somebody could live forever and i I think it's it's just a, a personal not safety but personal brand if you will or just you know your digital persona. I did like the tips on, you know, how to make them a little more anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think, you know, I when I send an email, I literally think, what if this is the only thing that ever somebody reads from me? Yeah. Like, so I'm really careful. Now, you know, little bit of a public profile, so probably give it a little more thought. And I do think there are generational differences. I think, you know, this next generation's like privacy. We never had it and we never will. But I, I you know, I think one should be careful of what they put out into the world. I think it's good advice. Dieter and I, we talk about this a lot in regards to Sexing. Slack. And put well, on slack. a cold. It's <laughs> cold out there. You're yeah. going to catch cold. Yeah. Okay, now no, I feel I'm 112. <laughs> jo- Johanna uh, Buyan, our, our cool, <laughs> excellent transportation reporter, was like, I have the oldest coworkers. I was like, yes, you do. <laughs> That's ageist. Well, if you're interested in checking out that episode, it's there in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, a bunch of other places. So check them out there. And um, that one was with Caitlin Dewey of the Washington Post. And we asked, is it possible to be a- addicted to sexting? Incidentally, another Anthony Weiner scandal broke the day that came out. But anyway, mm. let's talk about the Google phones. I'm really excited. I was very excited to have you both in studio, specifically because you both were at the event yesterday. I was not. You were there. You guys saw the phones, Google Home, all this stuff. So before we get into that, tell us first what Google announced. So there was a bunch of hardware. There were the Pixel phones that you mentioned. So the first Google designed and made phones. We'll get into that. Um, There was Google Home, their take on Amazon Echo, a speaker that's kind of always listening to you and ready to uh, track you and answer your queries, as well as Daydream, uh, which is part of a broader push into VR. People paid attention to the headset, but this is actually Google trying to be the operating system of virtual reality, the first manifestation of which is these really soft, cozy uh, virtual reality headsets. There was a Wi-Fi router kind of along the veins of a startup called Eero of you know, make up for bad Wi-Fi signals in your house by having multiple routers. Uh, what am I forgetting? Chromecast. Chromecast mm-hmm. Ultra. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So um, the uh, it has a long filter at the end. So yeah. It Speaking gets of healthier. putting condoms on gadgets. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the the article that uh, Paul Miller wrote on the Verge yesterday is uh, uh, Google announced an iPhone, a Galaxy Gear, an Eero, and an Echo. Oh, burn. Right? Yeah. Like, that's that, like every single one of the things that they announced yesterday, except the Chromecast Ultra, was in some way derivative or a refinement or a copycat of pre existing devices. Okay, now to play devil's advocate, though, there are some companies that aren't first to market, they come later and they just right. do things really well. Yeah, so in the exact same way that uh, the iPhone did that, now Google is also copying that strategy. Right. <laughs> well, and I think also, I mean, 
I do think all of the hardware products, with the exception of Chromecast, were not breaking, you know, earth-shattering new ground in hardware. You know, I do think where Google really comes at this differently is particularly AI. And so we did a piece, uh, April and I, looking at how, you know, really it was a hardware event. I mean, all the products were new hardware, mm-hmm. but the interesting piece was the software. It was the Google Assistant. It's the way machine intelligence is changing the interface and the value, what what we care about on these devices. So speaking of Google Assistant, my question as I was watching the event from afar on the YouTube live stream was, is this the same as Google Now? Is this supplemental <laughs> to Google Now? Can someone explain this? Wait, uh, Google should only have one product in each category? <laughs> oh. Somebody better tell them. There should be at least five assistants to go with the 17 messaging apps. Google can't explain it. The the, the man in charge of uh, like Google Search and Assistant, Scott Huffman, uh, uh, struggles to explain the differences between Google Now and Google Assistant and Google Search. The truth is that, well, the truth, the reality right now is that it, it feels a little bit fragmented. And so the way to think about all this stuff is there's like a there's like a central Google hive mind of the knowledge graph and all the stuff it knows about you and its ability to like search the web and find snippets of information and, you know, I don't know, read your email, this general thing. And they have been trying over and over again to come up with different ways to help you access that thing. And so Google now tried to surface that stuff a little bit automatically. You know, the search box has been doing that for a long time, but people don't use it for their personal stuff. And so the assistant is kind of a way to try and take all of the many different ways Google has tried to give us to access that core corpus of knowledge that it knows about the internet and about ourselves and make it easier to access. So I think long-term, uh, it's a pretty safe bet that Google Now, for example, is probably going to just get folded in. Uh, one of the things Huffman told me is that where it makes sense for Google Now alerts, like it's time to leave for work or your flight got delayed or whatever it would be that you typically see in Google Now uh, to eventually make it its way over to the assistant. He said something to the effect that like where where stuff that's in now makes sense for an assistant to tell you, then it will get in there. Um, but yeah, it is, it is still a little bit fragmented and not only is it fragmented in terms of like now versus the search box versus the assistant, uh, it's also fragmented in that the assistant actually operates very slightly differently depending on how you access the assistant. So yeah, there's three different canvases that the assistant lives in right now, Google home, the phone, and then in the messenger thing, hello. So, um, but you know, I think we shouldn't miss the meta point, which, uh, you know, they had Google CEO Sundar Pichai on stage to say, which is Google wants to build a personal Google for each person. And I think that's, that's really the shift is instead of there being Google as this entity that knows about the world, there's really a separate Google based on what it knows about the world and what it knows about you. And it's going to know a ton about you. So right now, if I uh, have a Google phone, let's say it's a mm-hmm. Pixel, or let's say it's another Android phone, mm-hmm. just for the sake of most people. Well, have like it's other, complicated, actually. Everybody has yeah, other yeah. Android phones at this point. Nobody has the Pixel, yes. And I'm using Google now as mm-hmm. my intelligent assistant on my smartphone. Mm-hmm. It's so- showing me cards of information every day that mm-hmm. tell me when to leave for work and all kinds of other restaurant reservations and all this stuff. But then I have a Google Home speaker, $129 speaker, Alexa competitor that sits at home. That is relying on the Google Assistant to tell me things or to play my music or to read me news or whatever it might be. It's Uh not relying on Google Now from my phone. Is that correct? Sort of. There's like layers of abstraction. So there's the core like Google corpus of stuff it knows about you. And now is one way to access it. And the Assistant is another way to access it. And so... 
they're both the same body of knowledge about you and both the same machine learning intelligence about you. Uh, it's just that it shows up weirdly in different places. So when you ask the assistant to remind you of something, talking to your home speaker, it will show up in Google now. It just sort of like goes through that, that central body of stuff. And so uh, Ina called them canvases, and that's that's kind of the right way to think about it. They just they keep on trying to like come up with different canvases or surfaces or whatever to get at like this giant pile of knowledge they have about you. Um, and unfortunately, it's a little bit confusing, but I think over time it'll probably make more sense. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I'll say is I have historically made fun of Google for not giving this thing a name. They call it the Google Assistant instead of Siri or Alexa or whatever. But I'm actually like, it's growing on me because one, it shows how big a bet this is. This uh, They named it after their company, their company, which has become a verb for how you search on the internet. So that's a big bet. And also, honestly, like I like it because uh, it is a relatively gender neutral or genderless thing, which mm-hmm. uh, is Yeah, helpful. almost every yeah. other person- personification is, is female. Yep. Cortana and right too. now it does have a female voice, right. um, but they, they said they're working on other recordings and and expanding that over time. The other thing to keep in mind is you mentioned how does this work and what's it doing? Google Home, the speaker, is tied to one Google account. So it's a little odd because it's a home device. Multiple people are going to use it. For now, it's tied to one Google account. And I'm not even sure if you could use a work Google account. I think it might just be a personal Google account. They said they're, you know, over time they expect it to support multiple users. And obviously the scenario that should happen is it recognizes the voices. Mm-hmm. Um, typically in the home there aren't yeah. that many people talking to it. It should know the kid from uh, one parent from another parent. They are actually working yeah. on that. They've got it internally. Yeah. They're just, you know, not ready to talk about it yet. But That seems like such a unique, not a unique problem to Google. Um, there are, of course, other companies where you're going to have multiple accounts with multiple types of personal data. But with Alexa, I mean, really, it's just tied to an Amazon shopping account. Right. So it's so, a completely different experience yep. if it's you talking to it, if it's your six-year-old talking to it. You know. But really, yeah. you know, I think over time, all these companies are going to want to get more nuanced, especially since we're dealing with kids and really understanding when a kid is talking to it and shrinking the amount of data it collects, mm-hmm. what it knows. I think we're going to see a backlash against all these assistants um, that are right now you know, there's kind of in this gray area because they're not explicitly collecting X, Y, and Z information. If they were asking for information from children, there are actually laws that would prevent it. Um, But there are a lot of children talking to Alexa and soon to be Google Home. And I think uh, regulators are going to be keen to uh, to pay attention to what types of information they're collecting. That was the thing I felt like was missing most from yesterday was sort of the questioning of what does it mean that Google is always listening in my home? And, you know, Apple obviously makes its case around privacy. Microsoft takes a middle approach uh, with Cortana. They have this thing called the notebook where you can actually see what Cortana knows about you and delete stuff. Uh, It's not clear to me that uh, there are any limits to what this Google Assistant will know about me if I type it in before and say it now. Yeah, will you two buy the? Will you both buy the home? I haven't fully decided. I mean, I, I have three Echo or Alexa devices in my house. Uh, I use them every day, uh, but I don't use them for necessarily Amazon things. And so I could probably pretty easily switch to a Google Home device instead. And the, this question about it doesn't work with multiple accounts actually it does a really good job of getting to the core advantage that Google Home potentially has over an Echo, more important than the fact that it's cheaper, is that it could actually be genuinely useful for the online services you might actually use. 
Um, you know, there was a time when Echo only worked with Amazon Music, and I was like, this is the worst thing ever. Uh, it only plays Wilco because I tried it for five seconds five years ago. And, and, you know, Google Home will work with more stuff, and it'll work with my actual calendar and so on. So if they can figure out how to make that, like, genuinely useful, it could have uh, a big advantage. If they can work out the messaging on the privacy, um, you know, their messaging on is it always listening is like, it's not listening till you say the OK Google keyword. Sorry to everybody listening in their car right now who has an Android phone. Their messaging on like actually managing your data that it knows about you is way, way fuzzier. I think Microsoft has a much better approach. Google seems to have an all or nothing approach where it's like, if you're uncomfortable, just go into your Google account settings and just delete it all. That's fine. <laughs> it's like, well, what if I just want to delete that one thing? It's it's a little bit hard to know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm really intrigued by it. There are a bunch of capabilities that I really like. Um, I have a Sonos right now in the bathroom and in the kitchen, and I don't have a voice-enabled one. And there's a bunch of advantages to them. I haven't totally sorted out how I feel about some of the privacy stuff. I definitely see the utility. It's not a, it's not a cost question for me particularly. I mean, I'm not a, you know, kind of cheap, but, you know, these are priced pretty darn affordably, both Google and Amazon's. If I wanted to do it, there's a bunch of ways to do it. It's, it's just a matter of you know, how do I feel about this thing? Yeah, it sounds like Google still has more work to do, or at least explanation to offer around how exactly it is going to handle privacy yep. with this device. Uh, let's talk about the phones. Yeah. Phones. So where should we start? There's all there's all kinds of places to start. Uh, I'm going to actually start with the reaction that I've seen from um, like, Android fans and particularly Nexus fans. So this is the end of the Nexus program. Google says they have no plans to ever do Nexus again. And the difference between a Nexus and a Pixel is a Nexus is some other company does 90% of the work. Google comes in at the end and says, oh, change these things and that'll make it more Googly. And then they like sell the phone to fanboys, which is literally what a Google executive said to me. Um, on the hardware side. We should on the be hardware clear. side, yeah. Because on the software side on a Nexus, it's whatever Google says it's right. stock Android. Right. And it's right. But it would always get the well, Android updates. First. It would get the Android right. updates first. And it was, it was always like, especially in the past few years, Nexuses were like stock Android with a little bit of Google opinion. So it wasn't like perfectly stock Android. And with the pixel, they're like, no, 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 this is Google's version of Android. Yeah. So now stock Android is not a thing that like people outside of, I think like, you know, the cheapest phones in China will get ever again. It's just like, it's like Unix. It's like a thing that's going to under, undergird everything, but it's mm -hmm. not going to determine the experience of the phone anymore. Anyway, so the, the reaction I've been getting from uh, a bunch of those Android fans is this weird sense of like disappointment. They're unhappy that it's expensive. Historically, most of Nexus phones haven't been this expensive. Um, and, you know, there's like people have mixed feelings about the fact that it basically looks like an iPhone. But like my, my take on it is like, Let's try it, see how it actually is. And, you know, I think from Google's perspective, the fact that it looks so familiar is like the point that people can walk into a Verizon store and they will see these two phones and like neither one of them is going to feel alien to them. I think for me, a couple things stood out. Um, partly was how Google introduced uh, the Pixel. They didn't focus on specs. They didn't focus on the kinds of things you often see at a hardware launch. They focused really on things that people do, and in particular photos, which yeah. I think, you know, mm -hmm. in 2016, if you were going to invest in any area, it should be photos. This is an area, historically, the Nexuses were not good cameras, and it made it hard for them to compete much above the mid-range. Uh, 
And I think also battery life, you know, they talked about how you can plug it in and quick charging is pretty standard that if you plug in a phone for a little bit, you get an outsized benefit. That's the answer to short battery life. And they said you can get seven hours and 15 minutes of charge. Every, every good new phone has a great stat on how much battery life, but that's important. I think on the camera, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of yeah. some of their claims. You know, they, they said, said this is the best camera ever, right? best camera ever, highest, you know, benchmark scores, super fast shutter speed, um, where I do think it's getting really interesting. And I think you're seeing this from Apple. I think you're seeing this from Microsoft. I think you're seeing this from Google is really making up for the fact that these are always going to have a small sensor and a limited, you know, focus and all this stuff with just a ton of computation. Um, I can see a day where Google takes a photo and saves that raw stuff to the cloud and then does a whole bunch of stuff and you get back a better picture. You already see Google in the cloud making montages and, mm-hmm. and stuff. They did have this really cool feature uh, that's on the device in hardware where you press a button and you hold the shutter button down. And it's taking a ton of pictures and then surfacing what it thinks are the most interesting. I think this is the future of smartphone photography is a lot of computation making up for obvious optical limitations. So they are expensive, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. They start, there are two phones. They start at $649. They go up from there. There's yeah. a regular sized one and a larger one. Yeah. When you held the phones in your hands after the event yesterday, did they feel like premium phones? Yeah, they felt like they felt like iPhones. <laughs> I mean, they, they've got a little, there's like subtle differences. They've got that weird glass shade on the back, which um, as far as I can tell is pointless other than aesthetics. It, it does help you align the phone in your hand. It uh, should help with antennas, but they still have antenna lines on the thing. But it it does feel really like, you know, it feels really nice and high end. Uh, it's It's got a different aesthetic than you get from a Samsung or even previous Nexus phones. Like there, it, because it's, it's it was intact the whole time you held it, right? It didn't start smoking. Didn't start right? smoking. Like, it's a different aesthetic from yeah, Samsung. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, they, they feel good. Um, the Actually, I, I want to jump on something Ina said. The the thing about the, the cameras and the battery life, and actually even the build quality, uh, to, to tie it into your question, like all of that stuff is stuff that like, because Google is saying they're making this directly, HTC is just the manufacturer, Google designed the thing. Um, it will be, I think, a really te- big test to see if Android can pull off camera quality consistently at iPhone levels. If it can pull off better battery life, if they control the whole stack, they have no more excuses for bad battery life. Um, and they have no more excuses for like kind of eh, hardware. If they're pricing this thing at 650 and they're putting their company's name on it, their big G logo on it, it's got to be basically perfect from top to bottom. So this is like... I want to say it's a big risk, but it's, um, to, to borrow a a word that's been popular lately, it's relatively courageous. Um, yeah, I think, you know, trying to sell top of the line Android phones is going to be a challenge for whomever, even for Google, even for Samsung. I think in the U S we have a distorted view of the market because in the U S people still buy in installments. You know, we use our phones so much. We're relatively wealthy, um, that people, tend to pay for top-of-the-line models, whether they're Apple or Google people. But I think globally, you know, you can do a lot for $400, for $500. And I think even Google is going to have a tough time. And I think the other piece of this is distribution. Historically, Google hasn't sold its hardware in that many places, especially its phone hardware. They are going to be selling in Verizon stores with the Pixel. But, you know, I I kind of question every time they say we're serious about hardware, I'm skeptical. So Google is a hardware company now. Yes. They make a bunch of stuff. 
It's yeah. a, and, and even they somehow fooled the tech press yesterday into saying, this is Google's first phone. And really it wasn't <laughs> because, as you mentioned, the Nexus line was, there, you know, they had made phones before that. But it's official now. What is the strategy behind this? So I sat down with Rick Osterloh, the head of hardware. He comes, he's had some stints at Google. He was the president of Motorola when Google owned it. Uh, he went with Motorola to Lenovo and then left. He's back. You know, they make the same arguments, actually, as they've made in the past when they've done hardware, which is sometimes to do really good software, you have to do hardware. They talked about that with the assistant, that in order to really make an assistant that works, they need to build the speaker. But then at the same time, they're talking about how they're willing to license basically everything that makes Google Home, Google Home to another hardware maker. I see Google moving in and out of hardware com categories all the time. I don't see them sticking to things. I see them being opportunistic about when they really feel they need to be in there. I think they'll break into new categories. Um, he mentioned the word secrecy. Uh, that you know, <laughs> basically when Google wants to do something it doesn't want the whole world to do about is one reason it needs to do its own hardware. They're really good at certain pieces of it. They're really good. You know, Chromebooks are good. Chromecast was a surprise hit. I think they are really good at building perfectly nice hardware at getting something that people like having in their home. I think they're actually more refined in their hardware design than software. Their software has a reputation for being kind of nerdy. Their mm -hmm. hardware, you know, if anything, I thought it was a little too uh, Glade Air Freshener inspired, you know, <laughs> Bed Bath & Beyond I was expecting to see as a list of retailers. But, you know, I think they're not a hardware company through and through. I think when it comes to, you know, selling in stores all over the world. That really isn't their thing. Customer support was a big thing. Yeah. Uh, so the Pixel will have 24 by 7 online support. You can share screens. This is something Google's always struggled with because, you know, there isn't like, you know, a big switchboard of people in general going, thank you for calling Google. How can we help you? <laughs> Which, by the way, was the worst part of that uh, terrible movie Interns with Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. Their final battle was like phone support. It's like, Google doesn't have phone support. What are you doing? <laughs> now they do. They do. And I mean, with Google That was five, the worst part of the movie. Yes. <laughs> not the, not the prior <laughs> not, not the 100 other. minutes. Uh, the, oh, man. Um, <laughs> so why are they making hardware, Dieter? So not only are they offering the Google Home stuff to other other companies, but literally everything that they have shown off software-wise, they claim other people are going to get to use. So the Assistant is going to get to other things. Daydream, the VR headset, is going to get to other things. Chromecast, you know, the 4K stuff is going to get to other things. The Google Home stuff is going to get to other things. Even their router software is going to get to yep. other things. So the difference for Google this time is they say that for the first implementation when they do something new, they want to make it themselves uh, so that they can nail the experience, especially with the assistant, and not trust other hardware partners to make the hardware and then they'll put their software on it. So with every single one of these things, it's going to go out to the larger ecosystem, but they're going to do it themselves first. And so there's two really big questions that come out of that. Number one, how long will it take for other partners to sign on? And number two, will as many partners sign on as have in the past because competing against Google probably isn't fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that if, you had, if we had been talking about this three to five years ago, that's all we would be talking about. Oh my God, everybody's going to bail because they don't want to compete directly with Google. Samsung's definitely going to launch a Tizen phone and we you know, go down the line of like, what's, who's going to bail on Google now that they have to compete directly with Google and hardware. I'm less sure that that's going to happen now simply because we saw Microsoft do it with Surface and Windows and basically nobody cared because there wasn't really a viable alternative. And it may just be that Google doesn't really believe that, you know, Samsung's Tizen or, you know, 
whatever other smartphone OS you want to point to right now is a viable competitor. And so they may as well do it because it's not like anybody has any place to go to jump ship in the same way that nobody had any place to go with Windows. Yeah, I think that's really become the thing is, you know, competing with your hardware partners is no longer the controversial thing yeah. that it once was. But I, I do really question how long Google will stay in any of these categories that we're talking about today. Um, I think if other people are doing a perfectly fine job, you know, I can almost read the Google statement, you know, when we launched insert product name here, uh, you know, we were paving new ground, there wasn't anything out there, we're thrilled that there's an ecosystem and are turning our hardware attention to other efforts. And I think you could apply that to almost anything. The phones, I think, is the one they're saying they're serious about. Um, and it's really the high end. When I asked uh, Rick Osterlow, are you guys going to do a range of things? He's like, no, we're focused on the high end. Um, they feel like they can bring more innovation there. There's more opportunity there. And it's the area where Android probably needs the strongest help. Again, the U.S. is a particularly tough market where, you know, Apple comes out with these products and Google wants something you can hold up to the iPhone. Samsung has filled that role. You know, <laughs> it's been a really rough couple months for Samsung. Um, and there's no one left to really take that mantle. You know, for a long time, you know, if Samsung had stumbled, you know, HTC and Sony were right there. I don't think HTC and Sony are right there. You know, if all this volume came to them tomorrow, I think they'd be thrilled, but I'm not sure they're uh, built anymore to handle that. You mentioned volume, and it's funny because all I keep thinking, or I have been thinking over the past couple of weeks, and it's something I'm writing about for The Verge, is just the sheer volume of hardware out there right now is kind of astounding. And at the end of the day, like, nobody really needs all of this stuff. And it's all just this one big sort of strategic effort to get people locked into, you know, planet Apple or planet Google or planet Amazon or whatever it might be. Like they're all creating these like, you know, half a dozen or dozen different entry points that you're essentially yeah. supposed to carry with you or put around your office or put around your home. And that is going to get you into their ecosystem. And it's kind of crazy. Like I, it's kind of like, like I was at Roku a couple of weeks ago and they're like, we have four new boxes and a streaming stick. And they're all like, mildly differentiated right. and then amazon just updated their streaming stick but the update was a faster processor and they included a voice remote which previously you had to buy for an extra ten dollars <laughs> and now google has like an updated chromecast but the chromecast is 4k which is great but not that many people have 4k tv still and you could still buy the old chromecast and and now like you know amazon chopped its echo speaker in half and sold the dots and then google has their speaker and by the way you need a wi-fi extender and it's just crazy the amount of hardware that is being pushed on yeah. consumers right now so i think that this has always been the dream of these large consumer electronics corporations we've and we've only really seen Apple execute on building an entire ecosystem of hardware products that sort of fit coherently together. And um, keeping it distilled, by the way. And keeping you know, it distilled, right. There are a few watches. There are two phones. There's yep. one TV So the, 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 the difference now is now Google is able to build an entire ecosystem. And so I think it's, it's a matter of like execution and like it's actually possible now in a way that it maybe wasn't when like Microsoft was trying to do it. As far as there being like just tons and tons of different gadgets and too many options, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. Uh, I think that in the same way that me as a writer on the internet has given up on my articles not getting disaggregated into a million different places and assuming that everybody's going to come and like see the coherent picture of everything that I'm showing to them, uh, I think that Google and Apple maybe a little bit and definitely Amazon are just like, eh, nobody's ever going to come and like 
look at our product chart and see the whole and see how it's going to fit into their life. They're just going to see little pieces here and there disaggregated. Right. So screw it. Let's just flood the channel. Right. Everything has to be distributed yeah. uh, in this kind of crazy way. It's a lot of throw, you know, throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks, whatever horrible cliche you, you want to use. And of course, there is the promise of artificial intelligence now. AI is a big selling point for a lot of these products. And in some cases, new devices enable that. You, know, you might need the far-field microphones in order to make that voice control work. You might need a faster processor to process your requests. You might need, I don't know, a specific type of chip if you want to control your smart lights. We know that Apple has required that with HomeKit-enabled devices. So in some cases, the need to upgrade to new hardware exists because we're getting access to this, this, these advanced technologies. But in, in other cases, it's like... Just it just feels kind of nuts. Right well, now. I think you We're are in the middle saying. Of I think season. Dieter's laughing at me. There's two things that that are really reflected in what you're saying. I think the first is there's a lot of hardware out there that is duplicative in some senses. Like you actually, I've always believed you don't need a smart TV. You're gonna plug a box into it. Like I don't know anyone that has a big TV that doesn't plug something into it. So why actually should the TV be smart? You know, have a fifty nine dollar box that you replace every couple of years. Um, but there's a million things that will give you Netflix and whatever, like Chromecast, all the boxes, Roku, Apple TV, you know, Google, Android TV boxes. So there is that. There's, you know, overlapping capabilities. But I think the more interesting thing you're getting at, too, is this idea that each of these companies has an ecosystem. And I think it's going to be tougher and tougher for people that don't make hardware but don't have an ecosystem, that aren't really solidly in one of these camps. Like, it really does feel to me like my Google devices are going to talk well together, my Amazon devices are going to talk well together, and my Apple devices are going to talk well together. And it's going to be harder to make that decision to have a mixed environment. I tend to be one of those people that likes to not put all my eggs in one basket. But historically, you know, they never do work as well together even, you know, a company like Amazon that's really committed to cross-device. Like Amazon, I like to buy my content from Amazon because I know it'll work on more devices than if I buy it from an Apple or a Google. Mm -hmm. I think what you, that what you touched on is interoperability. And interoperability is a selling point for some people. And the downside of interoperability is lock-in. So there's that. But we should move on to our reader questions we because should. we have a bunch and we want to make sure we give those uh, plenty of time. But before we take those questions, uh, first, here's Kara Swisher with a word from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, a super simple cloud accounting software that's helping over 5 million small businesses conquer their administrative and paperwork in less time with way less stress. It only takes 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice, and customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid three days faster on average. FreshBooks can show you whether or not a client has looked at an invoice you've emailed. It's kind of like having superpowers, but, but not the same at all. They also track expenses, cash flow, and the time you spent on each project. For your unrestricted 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com ask and enter too embarrassed to ask in the how you've heard about us section. That's freshbooks.com ask to start your 30-day free trial. Thank you, Kara, for that lovely ad read, Making the Money, even though you're not here. So my phone has been blowing up this week. <laughs> we use a different and phrase that's a little yeah. sensitive for some of our Sorry, listeners. Sorry, guys. I've gotten a lot of uh, questions from our readers over the past couple of days about the new Google products. And so we're going to go through some of them now. The first one is from Roberto Chiaveri. He's at Roberto Chiaveri on Twitter. He says, first Allo and Duo, now with Nexus phones priced as the iPhone. How is Google so sure people will switch? 
I'm not quite sure what, how he relates to Allo and do I guess he's saying that they have messaging apps. I don't. I mean, I think the question is: Are Google consumers premium consumers that like to really buy into an ecosystem? And I, I think it's an interesting one because I think historically, um, you know, there's certainly a large Android fan base, but it's not the bulk of the premium market. I think Google is trying to offer an experience, a high-end experience on par with anything Apple is doing, um, as well as its own smarts. Uh, but I do wonder, I do wonder sort of how, you know, Rick Osterloh said yesterday that he wants people to hold the iPhone and the Pixel up together, and he thinks that they will, and he thinks that Google can win that side-by-side comparison. I still think that may be a tough one. Yeah, I mean, for me, what's interesting is that we've never seen Google even try uh, at the high end, like they they never have. Even when there were like really nice Nexus phones, like the Nexus Six P, they would just whiff on trying to get it into carriers or into retail channels here in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, why does Google think they can get people to switch? Is like a it's like a, a totally fair question, uh, both regard to the hardware and you know those software products. But what's interesting is like they've always sort of tried to step out of that fight in the first place, and. You know, we'll see how they do when they're actually in it now for the first time. Okay, next question is from BT Carter at BT Carter on Twitter. Wonder why they chose the name Pixel. Makes me think small, not premium. They chose the name Pixel because they've already used it for other Google hardware, and it connoted that they they made Google that it, it's the hardware that Google makes. They also chose it because they like it, and it was like lying around. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think it's a terrible name. Uh, I think that uh, they they could have found something better. They should have. It was right to switch away from Nexus, uh, but the joke is that the official branding is Pixel, phone by Google. It's like no, come on. So uh, it's it's just like Microsoft puts is putting Surface on literally everything. Google's just going to throw Pixel at stuff. Interestingly, next year's Google phone might not be called Pixel. Hmm. What would it be called? Don't know. What would Pixels. you call it? No, um, I mean, I think the problem here is a lot of companies, they get their name for one reason or another. Pixel dates back to the Chromebook Pixel, uh, which had a super retina-y like screen and super retina-y was already super trademarked. So they, uh, you know, went with something else. And uh, now then there was the Pixel C, which was a bizarre tablet that ran Android and so it's the name that they have. Surface used to be a tabletop computer. Yeah. And then, you know, Microsoft had it literally the name lying around and chose it for their thing. And now there's Surface Books and stuff. So I think there's a trend of, you know, bad, ill-fitting names for really big right. tech companies. It's like the equivalent of, you know, registering a bunch of domain names one day when, you know, you're, but you're, let's, like, you're, you're like, oh, well, someday I might use this. And then 10 years later saying, I'm still paying for that. I might as well use it for this But let's be careful. The tech industry has a super long record of buying things based on the product, not the name. Remember when the iPad came out? <laughs> yeah. All the feminine hygiene jokes. <laughs> it didn't stop one person from buying it. So iPad, Pixel, Surface, all bad names probably for high-end tech products and won't mean a thing. Right. The, the one thing that I am, like, they call it Pixel, but, like, are people going to call it Pixel or are people going to call it the Google phone? They're like going to call it regular the human phone. people. They're going to call it the Google phone. Search trends already which is, it's the Google phone. Which is what it should be. I yeah, think. I mean, yeah. you know, people have been talking about the Google phone. I remember, you know, for years there was a discussion, like, the Google phone. Is Google going to make the Google phone? You know, before there was Android. Yep. And then, you know, there's been other times, the Google phone, and it turned out it was Nexus or this or that. This actually is the Google phone. So if people call it the Google phone, I think Google's very happy. Maybe that's what they'll call it next year. They'll just say, introducing the Google phone. 
Okay, let's go to the next questions. Uh, the next one's from Jose Allen ML. He says, a basic one, is the OS different than quote unquote stock Android? If so, how? Yes, it's uh, radically different. Uh, there's a custom launcher for the Pixel. There's the Google Assistant and um, just a bunch of other stuff, including some hardware optimizations that are unique to the Pixel, but may or may not come to future Android devices. Next question is from at John Pacheco 7. Do you think Verizon will make the same mistake they did with the Google Galaxy Nexus? So uh, with previous Nexus devices, when they made it on Verizon, Verizon basically screwed it up. <laughs> they they would block Google Pay or they, they just like there was like all sorts of fiascos with that. Uh, I spoke to Verizon at the event yesterday and they say they're totally in this. Uh, they say that they are not going to put any Verizon bloatware on this thing. And in fact, they say that they're going to be giving it really, really big retail presence in their stores and on the website. So they're motivated to sell this thing. So they say. And they're going to be combining it with Daydream. So people that pre-order will get a Daydream, the virtual reality headset, and you'll be able to try Daydream in the stores. Uh, you know, I think they're trying to use it as an opportunity to showcase some cool technology, as opposed to in the past, you know, Nexus was just, it was an afterthought. Even when it landed in a carrier store, it was an afterthought. It was complicated for them. I think now they see it as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. We didn't even get to talk about Daydream, by the way, in the no. first segment of the show, but Daydream is the VR headset that Google is making. It's $79. It works with the new Pixel phones. It, um, it has this lovely material that reminds it's me of my yoga cozy. pants. It's like my Heather Gray yoga pants strapped around your head. I mean, I can't think of anything That's else. That's actually their tagline. Yeah. Daydream <laughs> VR. It's like Lauren <laughs> Good's stretch pants wrapped around your head. That just sounds gross. <laughs> Dieter is shaking his head. He doesn't even know what to do with that. Moving on. uh, This question is from at Nick Zen. Why does home look like a big air freshener? He's not the only one that asked about the Version 2 is going to come in scents. Oh, man. (laughs) So Google's owning this air freshener thing, by the way. They won't say it themselves, but when you tease them for it, they're like, yeah, that's fine. What does an air freshener do? It sits in your house. You don't look at it. It blends in and it performs a useful function. So does home. That's their line. Wow. Owning it. Yeah. I like that. Now, does it also project fake stars onto your ceiling at night when you turn the lights off? Because I'd really like it to do that. It should I'm be like a little Harvey, planetarium. Harvey, my three and a half year old, does have one that projects See, stars. Why doesn't it do that? It's really cool. too. That'd be really fun. Okay. The next question is from Marcus K. Hardy. Okay. I've been annoying about this, but seriously, home with only one account per air freshener, will that change? I yeah. like how he asks yeah. a serious question, but just throws the air freshener just in there. Subtle dig. Yeah, it'll change. I, I, I don't have a good timeline for them. I know they're actively working on it. And they, internally, every single Google employee has more than one Google account. And so they're annoyed as hell by this thing. And so they're working on it. Yeah. And, you know, air, uh, Glade has one of those air fresheners where you can spin the wheel and get different scents. Yeah. So both both companies do. are working on multiple accounts. The next question is from at Paul Gailey. Home is never shown with cables in the photos, but ships with one. Is it a charged device or always cabled? Okay. I'm super annoyed by the cable on on Google Home. It is a charged device, or it has to be plugged in all the time. It doesn't have a battery, so you can't take it around. That's fine. But they went with a custom charger. They didn't use just USB-C. So, like... That's stupid. You got USB-C for everything else you make, Google. Well, except for Chromecast, which is micro USB. Anyway, they could have just gone with USB-C, and they did. Proprietary chargers. Come on. Hurt my. Come so on. if that's your pet peeve, I'm going to throw in that the uh, Pixel phone isn't waterproof to me if you yes. don't have a removable battery. Oh. oh, we have a question about that somewhere. Oh. Yeah, hold that thought. All right. Okay, All right. but still, we're on the home now. 
This one is from at Marina Eppelman. Can you put home in the bathroom? I.e., is it steam proof like the Sonos Play One? Uh, a lot of people are asking about this. I don't this. think it's waterproof. Uh, it's I have no idea how steam proof it is. How much steam have y'all got in your bathrooms? I set off my smoke alarm on a regular basis. Wow. That's how steamy. Yeah. I, like, and do you showers. have a speaker in, in there? No, I don't because I don't actually have an outlet in that area of the bathroom. And the bathroom's like separate won't parts. Help you there. And there's, yeah. Um, no, it won't. But. I, d- I don't know, actually. That's a really good question, Marina. We'll yeah, have to get back I have, to you on that. I have a Sonos. I didn't really know that it was steamproof, but I know they designed it for the bathroom, and it, you know, I like that. I hope if the home's going to have any chances, it's obviously got to live up to that for me. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Isn't it funny? Like, that's like the litmus test for gadgets. Will it work in the bathroom? The next one is from Kenton Harris. He's at UVAMFD on Twitter. How seamless will this home be in a dual iPhone home? Any Android-only gotchas? There's no Android-only gotchas. Uh, It can be controlled with an app that's called Home uh, that's going to be on both Android and iPhone. And coincidentally, it's also going to control Chromecast in the future. So it's what's going to be next for the Chromecast app. Anyway, you can do all the basic stuff. Uh, You can control it through that Home app. Uh, The one thing I'll say is if you don't use Google stuff for reminders or calendars or whatever, that's going to be harder. If you tell home to set a reminder for you, it's not going to jump into your iPhone's reminder app. It's going to go into Google's weird Google netherworld of reminders, uh, which is uh, dark and scary and confusing labyrinth. And I recommend never going there. Uh, hopefully they'll f- make reminders make more sense someday on, on Google stuff. But anyway, if you don't use Google services, you're not going to get to take advantage of some of that stuff. But otherwise, the thing's going to work fine. Okay. You know, I'm glad you brought this up. And one of our colleagues at The Verge, Chris Welch, brought this up yesterday as well, saying no micro SD card slot, no waterproofing. What's going on with that? So micro SD to me is no offense to all the nerds. We're all nerds. I like micro SD cards because I'm a nerd. But I, I think that's less a mainstream issue. Waterproofing, it's just the right thing to do. It's just what people want and expect. Um, I think people had a patience until Apple, you know, because Apple convinced us that we didn't need it, um, but we did. And now it's even on Apple phones. Um, There's just not a good reason in 2016 that I know of. Yeah, I think the the bad reason is that the uh, original device manufacturer for this thing was HTC, and HTC has not historically been great at waterproofing phones. That's the bad reason. The good reason is it should just be there. So big mistake there. Maybe the official Google phone that's going to be called the Google phone next year. Right. Not Pixel. Well, and it gives them something. You know, it's always good to have something to, you know, say next year. We heard you loud and clear. So the two things (laughs) we brought back. Samsung actually did that this year. They said, uh, you know, they brought back waterproofing and the SD card. And, you know, we heard you loud and clear. So, you know, they can hear us (laughs) loud and clear next year. Right. Please don't make my phone explode. So this next one is an email and it's a it's on the longer side. um, But I wanted to read it because it really kind of hit me in the heart here and made me think about these virtual assistants and how they really don't work all that great for everybody. So bear with me on this one. Dear Kara, dear Lauren, I've got a question for the new Google Assistant, as well as all of these artificial personal assistants in general with a language interface. I am a stutterer, so quite often I have difficulties interacting with Siri. Often she stops listening before I end a sentence. When she doesn't stop, she actually can deal with some of my blocks, something she couldn't do at all, let's say two years ago. But oh well, like I said, quite often she doesn't. 
I mean, Siri or Google Assistant seem at least promising in terms of their capabilities, but how can it be helpful when I can't use them whenever speaking to them is necessary? So my question that I would like to send in is, do you know if stuttering is an aspect the software engineers, in this case, Googles, take care of? Are they aware of the problem? Please excuse my English. I'm sending my question in from Germany, and I haven't been practicing my writing skills for quite some time. Thank you, Max. So... uh, I did contact Google about this. Mm -hmm. I sent them Max's question and I said, I think this is something that needs to be addressed. And it's not just Google. It's everybody who is uh, building virtual assistants and addressing accessibility issues. And by the way, you know, Apple and other companies have been pretty good about creating accessibility applications on their phones. Um, But generally, this is this is kind of this is a problem. I was just reading something in Scientific American about how individuals with severe speech disorders, uh, technology's word recognition rates can be somewhere between, quote unquote, 26.2% and 81.8% lower than for the general population. That's according to research that was published in Speech Communication. There's just a lot of variation for people that have speech disorders, in this case a stutter, Max's case a stutter. I'm wondering whether or not the tech companies are doing anything to really address this. Do we know? I think it's a reminder that we can't move to just one mode of interaction. I think voice technology actually helps a lot of people. It helps people. Um, it helps blind people. It helps a lot of people. So, But it leaves other people out. And I think it's a reminder that technology to reach all of us needs to be multimodal, that we can't, you know, voice is great for some things, but we can't just say, yay, voice everything for a variety of reasons. And and certainly speech challenges are one of those. But I think to your point, I think companies have gotten really good, especially the big ones, at adding accessibility. So, you know, voice is a godsend for a lot of visually impaired users. So let's not say speech is bad, but let's remember that speech doesn't work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if specifically uh, Google or any other company is addressing like particular like issues with speech, like like stuttering. Um, I do know and accents can an be a accent problem. Th- that they well, are they are aggressively sure. aggressively uh, trying to address different accents, um, both in English and other languages. In fact, uh, we had a story not too long ago where they. We're farming out work to a company to get a bunch of Scottish people to come and and speak at Google's computers to, for them to try and figure out the Scottish accent. So they're working on that. And I would like to think that the same sort of machine learning that helps for accents could help with other speech issues. Uh, but I don't know specifically that they're actively doing that yet. Google did get back to me uh, with a statement from a spokesperson and said, while it's still early days for the assistant and the products they just announced, most questions to the assistant are processed on Google's servers. Processing data in the cloud allows us to analyze patterns to make our services smarter, safer, and more useful. And this includes allowing us to provide better speech recognition that will continue to improve over time. So basically, I got a pretty, you know, a stock answer about how it's going to get better over time. I sort of pressed them on this. I said, so you have no official statement that directly addresses people with speech disabilities. And there's nothing that they're saying at this point beyond the general speech recognition overview that they've shared. And Google does occasionally put out data to say that they've improved the error rate. Um, Apple does this as well. I think once the devices are out, actually out in the market, this may be one of those things like privacy, mm-hmm. like multiple accounts on Google Home that you know they're going to have to figure out how to address. Can I, can I just, I got to say one thing. Google's been using the phrase "it's early days," and you gotta Since stop. Like Whenever anybody says it's early days, they mean one of two things. They mean one, 
we promise it's not too late for us to get into this market. It's okay. We're not too late. We promise. Or two, it means, yeah, the first version kind of sucks, but it's okay because it's still early. Like, just stop saying it's early days. Seriously. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point. And I think also, um, you know, some of these products aren't going to be right. Like, home is going to be a voice interface. Like, if speech isn't your preferred method of communication, it's probably not the best. I think where it's more important is on something like the phone that we not go too far down the path of voice only control. And, you know, I think, I think Apple added the ability to type in a Siri query. Typing in a Siri query, you can only correct the speech. I don't think you can. Okay. Just, well, you should be able to then. Yes, you should. For a variety of reasons. Most importantly, uh, for people who have speech challenges, but also for people that, for whatever reason, don't want to talk into their phone at a moment. Right. Uh, exactly. Maybe it was Cortana. I don't know. Someone lets you type in your speech query. Yeah, Cortana does, I think. Okay. Well, Max, thank you for sending in your question. I wish I had a better answer for you. I wish Google had a better answer for you and that we could say definitively that this is something that might work better than some of the other voice assistants you've tried. But unfortunately, I think it's one of those things where we're just going to have to keep trying. It is early days. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. All right. So before I let you guys go, I wanted to talk briefly about the fact that the day that we're taping this, Wednesday, October 5th, uh, marks five years since Steve Jobs passed away. It's been kind of a wild five years in the technology world since then, but we published some really great stuff on Recode this morning. Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher were talking about their interviews with Steve Jobs at the D conferences throughout the year. Also the interview they did with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs together. There are excerpts from that on Recode.net. You're definitely going to want to go check that out. I guess I just wanted to briefly hear your thoughts. First of all, I would love to hear kind of where you both were when that news broke on October 5th, 2011. And also just kind of get your ideas on where technology has gone since then. It's actually a really interesting story. I was on my way to Scott McNeely, the former Sun Microsystems CEO, to his house. He was launching a new product uh, called Weigh In. Uh, and to get reporters interested, we were supposed to come to his house. He has this palatial house with a hockey rink and all this stuff. Anyway, I was in the car got the news, pulled over, you know, and started writing from a coffee shop. Uh, I was living in California and The Verge hadn't quite launched, but we still had This Is My Next, which was like a little blog we had before The Verge launched. And I actually, you know, we had to cover the story uh, at This Is My Next. So I went down to the Apple campus and uh, there were just, you know, there were a bunch of people there and it was really sort of, it was very sad, obviously, and uh, really interesting to see everybody just like reporters actually being respectful at the Apple campus instead of shoving each other around. Um, there was a weird moment where um, an Apple fan showed up and played the bagpipes. Uh, and it just, it was all very, very somber, very surreal. And everybody was just like, I don't know, really actually like respectful in a way that you usually don't see at a, at a big, you know, tech campus. Mm -hmm. I actually, I have this weird story um, that involves Walt Mossberg where um I was working at the Wall Street Journal at the time. I was a video producer in the video department, and we were focused on live streaming a lot of video, which was sort of this novel idea at the time. You know, everybody live streams from from their smartphones. Um, but uh, so I, I got the news, and I, I ran. I was at dinner, and I ran back to the newsroom, and it was myself and a bunch of other editors, and we were trying to put together this live show as soon as possible, as quickly as possible. And a couple of the Wall Street Journal editors said to me, "Could you call Mossberg?" and see if he's available to join us on this live show. It was, a, it was about nine o'clock at night, maybe mm -hmm. at that point. Now the backstory, which is like just sort of this personal tangent, is that I was at this kind of crossroads in my life where 
I had uh, just gone to Hong Kong to interview for a job, and I was seriously considering moving there. But at the same time, I'd been talking to Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher for months. I mean, about six or eight months I'd been talking to you guys. I'm looking at Ina right now because it was all things D at the time about possibly working for them. And they kept saying, we'd really like to hire you, but we don't have the headcount, which is generally what one of those one of those things that people say to you when they're blowing you off. But I really believed them. I oh, trusted no, no. them. We I said, really no, <laughs> I said, no, they really don't have the headcount because we were under the Dow Jones umbrella at the time. And like everything was sort of bureaucratic. And But anyway, so I just I just kept saying, well, maybe they're going to come through with the offer. Maybe they're going to come through with the offer. But in the meantime, I'd interviewed for this job in Hong Kong. And I was like, I'm probably just going to move to Hong Kong. Right. So I'm in the newsroom the night that Steve Jobs had died in the Wall Street Journal newsroom. And I pick up the phone and I call Mossberg down in Washington. And I the first thing I said to him was, I'm sorry, because even though, you know, it was a, a source to reporter relationship that Walt had with Steve Jobs, but it was very, it was a long and close relationship. And Steve would tell him things that maybe he wouldn't tell other reporters and he had appeared in, in the conferences and, you know, Walt would get the Sunday night phone calls and all that stuff. So I said, I, I, I expressed my condolences. And then I said, can you come on this, this live streaming show we're putting together right now from the Wall Street Journal newsroom? And, uh, and Walt said, you know, I think I'd rather write right now. And he did end up writing an essay that ran the next day. But um, he said, uh, but I'll come on the show in the morning. And I said, okay, great. Thanks very much. And then he said, by the way, before I let you go, I got the head count. Do you want a job? Huh. <laughs> so, and then meanwhile, my current bosses at the Wall Street Journal were standing right next to me, you know, waiting with bated breath for Mossberg's response to see if he would come on the live show. And I just said, uh-huh. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Bye. And I hung up the phone because we couldn't actually have the conversation with him at that point uh, about, you know, about the job. And so, but anyway, we ended up, you know, putting on this live, this uh, live streaming video. There were a bunch of people. Uh, Kevin Delaney was in it, Jessica Vassalero, now Jessica Lesson. Um, a bunch of us were, were there, um, all intersected at the journal at the same time. And and so that's what we did. And anyway, I ended up taking the job with Walt and Kara in the rest is history, as they and say. Now, now I didn't move to China, here. you know, so now you're stuck with me. Excellent. That was five years ago. And, you know, I remember like feeling, you know, about a week later, I remember having this feeling. I felt kind of down and I didn't really know why because I just accepted a new job. And generally, you're very excited. And I and I had wanted to write for a long time. And this was going to give me an opportunity to write, do less video, more writing, which was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to write about consumer technology. And I felt really down. And I, I said to a friend who also uh, worked with me at the time, I said, you know, I think this sounds crazy, but I think I feel like things might be less exciting now that Steve Jobs has died, which is, sounds like sort of a crazy and unimaginative thing to say, because anyone with any sense of imagination um, or just curiosity about the world will look around the tech industry and say, there's so much exciting stuff happening. It doesn't all just hinge on whatever product Steve Jobs has invented. I, you know, but it felt it felt that way. Like things I, I feel like be as exciting. something something is definitely missing. It doesn't mean innovation has stopped. It doesn't even mean innovation at Apple has stopped. But I think you know Steve was unique. I wrote an essay that day uh, for for all things D. The three irreplaceable qualities of Steve Jobs, and you know this was someone who I respected greatly for you know all the things he brought to Apple and did not have a close personal relationship. We had a contentious relationship. The few times I interviewed him, uh, he was usually telling me all the things that, that he didn't agree with. And I was asking him hard questions that he didn't appreciate. But as, as a leader, I think, you know, he, he had an innate sense of taste, uh, that was unlike any other that I knew, you know, he, he had a couple misses, but in general, he really knew what people wanted. Um, and I think Apple could dearly use 
his sense of taste. I think he, there was no better marketer of something. He could sell it like no one else. Yeah, and actually with that, like the the difference between innovation now and innovation five years ago when we had him was he could tell a better story about the innovation that crystallized what it meant, how you should think of it, and how it was like different and important. So when, you know, he there like almost every seminal Apple product that he unveiled, he didn't just say, here's the thing, it's really fast or it's really good. He would he would tell a really compelling human story uh, that would like put it in a context where it wasn't just like yet another gadget. It was an, an actual thing that you understood and could fit into your life. And nobody's really been as good at doing that particular kind of thing uh, since since he died. And then the third one that I, I don't want us to lose sight of is he drove people to be their best. And it wasn't fun for a lot of people that worked with him. But I do find myself noticing details on products and being like, you know, I wonder if this would have passed like Steve have passed or if he muster. would have, mm-hmm. you know, it's way overused in tech to be like, Steve Jobs never would have allowed this. And I, I think, you know, we can't know. Um, I do think it's safe to say that you know, he pushed people harder than any executive I know. There's a lot of type A personalities in Silicon Valley. He certainly wasn't unique in that. But, you know, people came up with great answers they didn't think were possible under Steve. It feels as though for the past five years, we've all tried to figure out who the next Steve Jobs is. And of course, no one can live up to that. But there are lots of tech entrepreneurs that it's written, been written in articles, whether it's, I don't, you know, it's everything from Jack Dorsey to Elon Musk to the woman who founded Theranos also wears black turtlenecks and people make these crazy sort I, of... I think we've <laughs> safely said that Elizabeth Holmes is not the next Steve Jobs. Right, right. I mean, do you think there is anybody right now in the tech industry who inspires in that same way? Boy, I don't know. Uh, to sort of anoint somebody as a successor to Steve Jobs seems like not possible. Um, I mean... If there's anybody in the same, you know, I don't know, solar system, it would probably be Elon Musk right now. But the thing that Elon Musk hasn't done that Steve Jobs did was like ship millions and millions of things to millions and millions of people. Exactly. He hasn't pulled that off yet. I mean, I think I think the reason that Elon gets compared so often is his vision is beyond what's in front of him. It's way out there. I, I think his vision is actually about changing society more broadly. You know, Steve Jobs was mostly interested in changing personal computing or computing world, you know, Elon here on earth. Yeah. yeah, Elon wants to colonize other planets and change the way we drive. Those are actually bigger things. But I think, you know, similar in the huge ambition, relentless drive. When he talks, he inspires you. He gets you excited about the future in the world in a way that few others do. I think those are the reasons for the comparisons. And there's not going to be another Steve Jobs. I think the smartest thing uh, that Apple has done since is is not try to replace Steve Jobs, but try to do the best it can as a company without Steve Jobs. Well, thank you for sharing your memories and your insights. And thank you to our listeners, by the way, for sticking with us. If you're still listening, that was a long, too embarrassed to ask. So Dieter and Ina would love to have you back on the show sometime soon. And if you had as much fun as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash too embarrassed to ask. And subscribe as well. If you subscribe, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday. You can catch up on previous episodes. That's where we answer all of the tech questions that you have been too embarrassed to ask. And if we ever have a sneaker phone, you'll be the first to get it. 
That's iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask, or you can subscribe on Google Play Music, TuneIn, or Stitcher, or listen to every episode at Recode.net slash podcasts. And while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. The Verge also has some great podcasts for your listening pleasure. Walt Mossberg and Eli Patel host Control, Walt Delete. Eli also usually hosts The Verge Cast, where Dieter makes regular appearances, and Chris Plant hosts What's Tech. Don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. That's two R's and two S's. Or email them to Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. You're very good at that. Should Kara be worried? Yes. Maybe. She should be. I'm uh, sitting in the red chair right now spilling Diet Coke over it. Yeah, <laughs> wearing sunglasses indoors. Well, thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors. Thanks also to Digital Media, a group that distributes this show. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask. So tune in then.